And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You really need to know John King, and I don't mean my colleague at CNN, although we need to get him here, too. I'm talking about the John King who served as education secretary during the last uh, year or two of the Obama administration. He is a remarkable guy with an incredible story who continues to devote himself to the cause of educational equity in this country and teaching excellence. I sat down with John uh, last week in Chicago uh, to talk about his life and also about the implications of some of the education uh, policies that have been recently announced by the administration. John King, so good to see you. There, there's so much to talk about uh, of contemporary variety, but um, before we do, and that of course includes the administration's newly stated revocation of uh, some of the directives that the Department of Education, Department of Justice gave to universities on affirmative action. I want to get to all that. But uh, you have an incredible story. Um, And I I really want to talk a little bit about that before we get into other stuff. Okay. Um, you, You are the product of two educators. Yes, both my parents were New York City public school teachers. My my mother came from uh, Puerto Rico, where she was born as a kid to the Bronx, classic sort of New Yorkian story. Uh, learned English in New York City schools, went to CUNY for college, became a teacher and a counselor. My father, who was African American, grew up in. Brooklyn just after the turn of the 20th century, and uh, there weren't a lot of paths for African-Americans, frankly, and, and he decided he wanted to be a teacher and try to give back to the community where he grew up and uh, spent his whole life working in New York City public schools. You, your mom was Puerto Rican. Were you bilingual from... No, you know, because my father didn't speak Spanish, uh, my mother spoke Spanish at home, but but we didn't speak Spanish as a family. I and see. then both my parents passed when I was a kid. So yeah. I learned Spanish more in school uh-huh. than, uh, than at home. Yeah, so let's talk about that because um, uh, tragically you lost both your parents within a re- relatively short span of time. Um, t- uh, w- your mom, I guess, got ill first. Yeah, yeah. It was um, October of my fourth grade year. I was eight. And uh, my mother actually was a guidance counselor at the junior high school across the street from my elementary school. And she had a heart attack one day at work um, and passed away that night. And she'd really been the center of my world. Um, and then I lived with my father. My, oh, let's uh, hold on yeah. for a second because yeah. what, what I'm trying to process what that was like for you as an eight-year-old to have someone who was as so central to everything in your yeah, life. Yeah. Uh, and you you wake up one morning and everything's normal and you go to sleep that night and your whole life has changed. How does an eight-year-old boy process that? It's so hard to process. I mean, it just... I think for years I I couldn't really process it. It just was a sense of loss that's sort of indescribable. How, how did you find out about it? So um, 
I knew she was in the hospital um, the night that she had the heart attack. And then um, everybody said, there were a bunch of adults in the house, and they all said, it's going to be fine. I went to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, uh, my father said he had to talk to me, and he told me, and I just screamed and cried and couldn't believe it. Um, And then I insisted on going to school um, because... Actually, my mom had been the guidance counselor at my elementary school at one point when I was when I was in kindergarten, first grade, and so uh, being at school felt closer to her. Being at school felt uh, safe, and so everyone was saying, "Oh, you don't have to go to school," and I I really wanted to go to school, and um, yeah, you know, school was actually then the place that that gave me a sense yeah, of sanctuary. order. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you, you've spoken or written about uh, a teacher, Mr. Osterwell, mm-hmm. um, who, uh, and I think that was around that time, right? Fourth and fifth grade? Yeah, yeah. It was, he was an amazing teacher. He, he looped with us in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, which is so unusual in you know New York City public schools of the time. But um, he really became like a surrogate parent for me. I mean, his mm-hmm. class was amazing. We... Um, you know, we did productions of Midsummer Night's Dream and Alice in Wonderland. We went to the museum and the ballet. We learned the capital of every country in the world and the leader of every country in the world. He just, he made school interesting yeah. and fun and safe. Yeah, yeah. I I am the product of New York City public schools as well. PS40, Junior High School 104, Stuyvesant High School. And... Um, I had a teacher in first and third grade, and I skipped second grade, named Mrs. Roth, Lee Roth. And um, the way you describe Mr. Osterwell was much like mm. her. I mean, she exposed us. She brought, you know, the poets John Ciardi and Ogden Nash to our class and took us to, to meet Leontine Price, who was a mm-hmm, path-breaking mm-hmm. opera singer, African-American uh, opera singer. And we studied the newspapers in New York Times and this was when Dr. King was on his ascendancy and uh, the civil rights movement was really in full bloom and we learned all uh, about that and I was kind of what you would describe as a hyperactive kid and she really wrote hurt on me in a way that was helpful Mm -hmm. in in seeing me uh, through um, all in a New York City public school. So I very much appreciated when you wrote that. But shortly after you lost your mom, your dad began uh, showing signs of of illness himself. Yeah, yeah. So my my father was much older. Uh, You said he was born right after the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah, 1908. So my, you know, my parents were sort of 26 years apart. Um my father had Alzheimer's, um, but it wasn't diagnosed. So it got much worse over the time from when I was eight till when I was 12. And so I didn't know why, but he was incredibly unpredictable and, you know, these huge mood shifts. You know, some nights he was angry, some nights he was sad, some nights he would engage with me, some nights he wouldn't. Um, and probably and, if your mom had been around, she would have helped manage that. But yeah. without her, there was no, no no way for a young kid to 
interpret all of them. Exactly. It was just the two of us. I, I mean, I thought, I guess I thought he was crazy, or that was the only way I could describe <laughs> it. I just, it just was so unpredictable. Yeah, I, um, I read somewhere he woke you up in the middle of the night one night to tell you it was time to go to school. Yeah, it was like 2 a.m. He woke me up. He says, time to go to school. And I remember being on the staircase of our house, kind of clinging to the banister as he pulled me on the stairs and kept saying, we got to go to school. And I kept saying, no, Daddy, it's not time to go to school. It's the middle of the night. And I didn't know why he was doing that. It, that was very, very hard to process. Um, and as he got more and more sick, I ended up doing more and more things at the house, the laundry, the food, figuring out even how to write checks in his name to pay the bills, just trying to figure out how to keep the household going. And you're like 10, 11 going. years old now. Yeah, yeah. And the rest of my... Had to, I read, you had to sort of sneak in and steal money from him to go and buy the groceries because yeah. you, I guess you didn't want to tell him that you were doing no. these things that he probably knew... No, that, I mean, that eleven-year-old shouldn't be doing. Yeah, for I him. think part of you know, as I've read more about Alzheimer's, I think part of what happens is you have you know routines kind of stick longer, and so for years, I guess he'd been going to the bank and withdrawing money and then putting it in a drawer and not using it. So I was hungry. We didn't have any food in the house, and so I realized I needed to get some of that money and go get. Hmm. Food and I, I felt like I was stealing, but I didn't know what else to do, and I was really hungry. Yeah. And so the, I, you know, it just was this very difficult period, and home was just really difficult, and it made school take on this even greater role in my life because school was the place that was consistent and where I did have these positive relationships with adults. And they were aware of what was going on in your home. And, you know, somewhat, I don't know that anyone understood the scope of it, and, and my sort of extended family didn't really understand the scope of it. And it was just the two of us in the house. Um, and, you know, and then he just got more and more sick. Towards the end, I think folks started to have more of a sense that there were things wrong. Yeah. And then uh, one night he fell, and uh, I had a cousin who happened to have been in town and was staying with us for the night, and we went to the hospital. And, you know, when you fall and hit your head, they give you a set of tests, and he couldn't pass the tests, right? He couldn't answer his birthday and, you know, who the president was, those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. And that led to the diagnosis, and, and he actually never came home from that. He went into the hospital and then, and then passed away. And you away. were 12. No, I was 12. And you went to live with a, a half-brother? Yeah, my, my mother's son, uh, who's about 12 years older than me. And he, um, you know, he loved me and he wanted to make a good home, but he was 24, I was 12. Uh, he drank all the time. He partied a lot. He was 24. He, he was 24. Right. And he was not really in a position to, to raise me. Yeah. Um, and so that in fact, was... In you, fact, you had to do some... You had a all now trained as a kid to take care of household chores and so on. You end up doing that for your brother as well? Exactly. It felt the same. I mean, I was sort of managing the household with my brother, and I, I knew that wasn't right, and I knew that I, I needed something different, that I needed more structure and support. And I happened to have a friend 
who went to PS276 in Brooklyn with me, who had gotten into a private boarding school on a scholarship, and he told me about it, and he, um, he gave me, it, that conversation gave me the idea, oh, maybe if I go to boarding school, I could get out of this situation with my brother. And you did. And I did. I went to uh, Phillips Andover, same yeah. uh, school where um, presidents, both, both President Bush's went. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was incredibly out of place. You know, uh, there was not a lot of diversity at the time. Um, you know, I felt very isolated as a student of color there. I felt very isolated as a kid from the city there. Um, academics were great. I learned a ton. I had uh, really good academic experiences, but I was really out of place socially. And, I, and I'd been through a lot as yeah, a kid, and I, sure. I turned that into being angry at adults, the way lots of kids who've experienced trauma do. Yeah. You know, I was m- mad at my parents, even though that's probably rational, I was. Yeah, but it's very understandable. And I just I acted out, got in a lot of trouble, and got kicked out. Um, even though you were doing well academically, even though I was doing well academically, I still like cut class and was disrespectful to teachers and mm-hmm. didn't pay any attention to the rules about when you had to be in your dorm and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and I kept getting in trouble. And eventually, I got I got kicked out, and that turned out to be really important. Who did you turn to, with you, you know, without any, without either of your parents, you know, a brother who loved you, but you. Uh, but but really wasn't in a position to provide the kind of guidance that you were looking for. I know you you had an uncle. Yeah, yeah, my uncle Hal, who was my father's youngest brother. Um, he was a Tuskegee Airman, you know, one of the first yeah. African American pilots uh, during World War II, uh, and then career Air Force. And so I went to live with him and his wife, uh, my aunt Jean, and they had a very structured household dinner at the same time every night you know career military yeah of family. course yeah um how'd you take to that it was hard initially um but in some ways i was craving that i was mm-hmm. craving structure and order and support and they provided that and really helped me um get my life back on track uh i'm very grateful for that and so actually getting kicked out turned out to to be the best thing for me because it put me in a situation where I was with my aunt and uncle and able to get get myself organized. You know, you talk about your your uncle as a guy who was a disciplinarian and very uh, regimented schedules and so on. I saw a story about your dad that he had broken his hand and he went mm. to he went to school with a cast on and what happened yeah yeah so he you know he was he was teaching and he went into school and the principal said you have to go go home you can't teach with a cast on and my father said no i'm i'm fine i'm i'm just going to teach my class it's not going to affect me and principal said there was some rule about not not being able to be in class so my father went over and you know from being in new york city schools there are those high counters in the office and he went over to the counter and he smashed the cast on the counter and brushed the pieces into a trash can put his hand in his coat pocket and 
went and taught his class. And so, you know, I don't have that many memories of really good conversations with my father, but I do remember, even as a little kid, that whenever someone in the family would complain or say something was too hard, my father would sort of hold his wrist, you know, and he'd say, <laughs> oh, I think it's going to rain. And it was sort of to remind you of that story and make sure everyone knew, you know, that perseverance and discipline were important. Yeah. Probably also reminds you that there are some stupid rules that <laughs> yes, that are, is also true. that apply that <laughs> probably don't do anybody uh, any good. Um, so you you did get your act together and mm-hmm. and you ended up at Harvard. Yeah, yeah, and, which was an amazing experience. You know, I, when I different was, than Andover. Yes, I think um, a few things. One is you know in Cambridge, so I got very involved in life in the city. I ended up spending probably as much time in class as I spent doing public service work in um, after-school programs, summer programs, in-school teaching and why programs did you do in the that? city. You know, I was very drawn to um, the experience of trying to do for other kids what teachers had done for me. And so I started with volunteering teaching civics in a middle school in Boston, and that turned into really public service and and youth development work being the core of my college experience. And that was very different. Andover felt very isolating. At Harvard, I felt like I was a part of this um, the broader city community. And really got engaged in the Phillips Brooks House, which is the sort of center for public service at at Harvard. And um, that really defined my undergraduate experience. So um, I said we would talk about this later, and there's a lot more to your journey that I want to get back to. But this seems like a good time to talk about this uh, question of diversity on campus. Um, First of all, what what were your feelings about um, your place on the Harvard campus, and what did what did it do for you? What did it what didn't it do for you? And what do you think um, your presence contributed to hmm. the community uh, uh, at Harvard? Yeah, I mean, I I love the diversity at Harvard, and now it's fair to say they they have more work to do to make sure that they are serving diverse but, students. Yeah. But but I, you know, I appreciate that there were. African-American students, Latino students, Asian-American students, there were kids from all over the world. And I felt, particularly being in the city, um, connected to the diversity of Boston and Cambridge. The Do you think, did, now was race a factor, do you think, in your admissions at Harvard? I, I assume so. I mean, I, I, you know, I had to write the supplemental essay they make you write if you've gotten kicked out of high school. So yes. uh, Harvard took lots of chances on me, right? They, I was, it was really a second chance saying, even though you've gotten kicked out of school, we see this academic Well, and in potential. fact, I think I saw somewhere that, and maybe it was just speculation that the essay that you wrote about uh, about getting kicked out of high school showed uh, such self-awareness that it impressed them uh, enough to want to take a chance on you. I mean, that's, that's very possible. You know, I, when I, at the time I wrote it, I thought I might not get in anywhere. I mean, I really worried that getting kicked out meant people would just kind of give up on me, as we do as a country with so many young people. So let's talk about uh, this moment that we're in because the uh, Trump administration announced... Uh, in the last few days, uh, that they were reversing uh, 
some of the guidance. There were, I think, 24 mm-hmm. points of guidance mm-hmm. that the Department of Education and the Justice Department jointly gave to institutions of higher learning um, that uh, spoke to how they might implement affirmative action in accordance with Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruling on this uh, subject. What was your reaction when you heard that, and what do you think the impact of it is? Yeah, well, I think it's part of a pattern, unfortunately, that we've seen from the current administration of going backwards on civil rights issues, on education equity issues. Um, so it's consistent with with the approach that they've taken. It's dangerous because the truth is African-American and Latino students are significantly underrepresented, underrepresented on Ivy League co- campuses, underrepresented in uh, research universities, underrepresented in flagship state public higher ed institutions, um, dramatically underrepresented in many cases. So we ought to be having a national conversation about how we get more African-American students, Latino students, low-income students, first-gen students to those campuses. And instead, they've taken us in this entirely different direction, uh, feeding this mythology that somehow uh, students are losing places to African-American and Latino students. I also worry that... um, you know, we have now in, in our nation's public schools, a majority of the kids are kids of color. The future of the country depends on having uh, African-American, Latino, low-income students who get great educational opportunities and are prepared to lead into the future. And this decision uh, to withdraw the guidance undermines those efforts. Now, it doesn't change the law, and the law still allows colleges and universities to use race in a limited way in how they make admissions decisions. Um, but, but taking away the guidance, I think, sets up a series of what will be future lawsuits that will, yeah. I think, ultimately and maybe undermine. with a new and, and we know that it will be presented to a Supreme Court that won't have Justice Kennedy who wrote the decision on affirmative action, uh, preserving affirmative action as one element of what universities can can that, use that's in exactly admissions. Right. It's very possible that the next justice who takes his place won't share that view. Yeah, and you know, when you look at the, the, at the numbers on how many students are admitted because they're legacies, you know, their parents went to the school, how many students who are admitted to elite universities because the development office says, hey, mm-hmm. this, this this kid has a parent who can make a big contribution. The the effect of affirmative action is just vastly overstated by the opponents. And the truth is we ought to be doing more. We ought to be working much harder to get a uh, diverse student population to our college campuses. Yeah, I don't know the, the facts of this, so there's an element of supposition. But my guess is that Donald Trump didn't get into the University of Pennsylvania on the basis of his superior academic performance, that it may have had something to do, as you say, with who his dad was, what his dad could do for the university. Um, But that's just speculation on my part. I don't think we'll ever know, because I don't think we'll see. He he was keen to see other people's uh, academic transcripts. I don't think we'll ever see his, though. No, they're probably stored with the tax returns. Exactly, exactly. But what is the, what, what, what is, first of all, what do you think the motivation is for this policy you said turn the clock back but is is for to what end and secondly what what um do you fear that there will be a practical 
impact. A lot of universities say we're just going to follow the law. But as we've said, the law could change. What is the impact on the country? Yeah. Well, look, I think from a political standpoint, this is a strategy to divide. And it's, again, consistent with uh, the approach that the administration has taken on issues around immigration, issues around LGBTQ rights. This strategy of sort of feeding uh, the president's base by dividing people and giving them reasons to be angry, to blame someone for economic challenges they may face or uh, frustrations that they may have. I think it's very dangerous to the kind of health and well-being of our civic culture. Um, in the end, if the Supreme Court ends up backing away from affirmative action, if we see individual universities uh, concerned about this new position from the federal government changing their policies, what we could end up with is even less access to opportunity for talented African-American and Latino students. I think that will be um, a, a long-term disaster for the country. We ought to be doing everything we can to create diverse future leaders. We know the evidence is diverse campuses create more learning opportunities for students. Companies that have diverse leadership get better economic returns. Uh, diversity is good, but this administration is trying to frame diversity as something that's bad. Well, as a zero-sum game. That's right. And, uh, and there are people... John, as you know, who would, will say, well, why should that kid get in? Why should he get extra points or she get extra points because they're black, they're Latino, if, if that means that my child can't get in? Yeah. At the end of the day, what we want is a diverse class, right? We want students, some students who are going to excel in music, some students who are going to be great athletes, some students who are going to be great in science, technology, engineering, and math. We want racial diversity. We want some students who grew up in rural communities, some in urban, because we want universities to be a place that exposes students to experiences different from their own. Um, that's how I hope people will think of it. I also, it's worth saying, there's a real worry that this also has K-12 implications. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of what revoking this guidance does is send a signal to school districts that um, the administration is opposed to them thinking about how to create more diverse schools within school districts. Even though 60 years after Brown versus Board of Education, we have many communities around the country where schools are more segregated today than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Because of housing patterns. Yeah, yes, a mix of housing patterns and school assignment patterns mm -hmm. and school assignment policies. And communities ought to be thinking about how to create more opportunities for kids to go to integrated schools. And I worry that the revocation of guidance on those issues will also undermine that diversity work in K-12. I thought you were going to go somewhere else, which is, which I, you, you make a good point, but also the, uh, the idea that uh, it will uh, discourage students from thinking about themselves as as potential college students. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, part of why I applied to Harvard was uh, African-American male student from Harvard came to visit my high school and talked about the experience. And it was the first time I thought, oh, Maybe that could maybe, maybe that could be a place where I, where I mm -hmm. could go. That was hugely important for me. And if students don't see students of color on these campuses, you know, you, you'll sort of be in a downward spiral. You'll get fewer applications. You'll get students internalizing that those opportunities aren't for them. You left uh, you left Harvard and you 
went and and uh, pursued teaching mm-hmm. as a career and got a master's degree from Colombia went to Puerto Rico I believe to to mm-hmm. teach uh, was there a bit of was that with your mom in mind that you went there yeah yeah I wanted to have the experience of living there and and getting more of a sense of uh, the Did you still experience. have family there uh, yeah di- extended family mm-hmm. uh, distant family um, and I loved I you know I loved the experience of teaching there I taught in a independent school there um, but I missed um, the city I missed um, doing social justice work i mean i was trying with the students i had in puerto rico to give give them a sense of being reflective about some of the ways that class and race play out in puerto rico but it was a school serving we've, we've largely seen that in, students. Uh, in 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 bold relief in recent years uh, with the uh, the post-hurricane disaster that's that's, that's right that's uh, right visited the island I mean, there was already an economic crisis, already a, a significant breakdown of, of government services. But then... What about the education? The, and uh, real struggles in the education system, real, uh, particularly around resources, just not being able to afford to pay teachers well, not being able to afford uh, to create rich learning opportunities for kids. Uh, but then the hurricane has exacerbated all of that. And then you had the... F- complete failure on the part of the federal government to respond appropriately. And so uh, it's a real crisis. I mean, people are leaving in, in droves. And, uh, you know, I worry about the future for the island. You uh, returned to Boston and you taught there. And then you uh, you, you uh, teamed up with a, uh, I guess, a classmate of yours. Is that right? Um, so I... So I taught back in the community where I'd done public service work as an undergrad in in the Roxbury community, a high-needs community of color in Boston. And I was teaching, and then kind of through mutual friends, um, met Evan Ruddle, who's actually from here in Chicago, and and he and I started Roxbury Prep, a, a charter middle school in Boston. Yeah, and he he really sat down with you to kind of pick your brain about uh, ideas about how one might create a rich learning environment uh, based on your experience as a teacher, and uh, that I guess that conversation went on a while. Yes, yes. I was so I was teaching in Boston. I was teaching high school social studies um, and having a great experience. And I thought I was just kind of giving Evan advice about this new school, but it turned out he was actually recruiting me to start the school with him and we, we ended up doing that and i spent five years uh building that school it was amazing roxbury experience. preparatory charter school yeah which was very successful mm-hmm. uh gained a great reputation also a reputation for uh a sort of uh martial efficient or discipline uh of the sort that would have made your uncle uh, probably uh, proud, uh, but uh, uniforms and no talking in the hallways and I guess in the lunchrooms. And what was the thought of, uh, behind all of yeah. that? Because that gets raised sometimes. As, yeah. uh, man, that, that seems very stark. Yeah, yeah. So it was very definitely very structured. Um, you know, the school served uh, almost entirely low-income students, entirely 
students of color, uh, became the highest performing urban middle school in the, in the state. Um, but it was very structured. We, we, kids did talk at lunch, but we did have these very efficient hallway transitions, which uh, definitely always struck visitors because they, w- they were surprised by the level of structure. But the idea was... were used to a lot of chatter in the hallways at mm-hmm, school. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I was a chatterer, so I know. <laughs> me too. Uh, but the idea was to focus the energy and conversation on class. And so we tried to make classes as engaging and hands-on and interesting and made the classroom and the extracurricular programs, places that were um, joyful and academically rigorous at the same time. And, you know, the uniforms and the structured hallway transitions helped us kind of make sure that the energy of the school was focused on learning. Let me ask you something, because earlier you talked about um, how you needed the structure Mm -hmm. that your Mm -hmm. uncle uh, provided um, how much did you draw on your own experience as a kid who was really sort of adrift mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in planning and thinking about this, uh, this environment, in which you, you, I guess anybody could apply to this school. That's and right. you probably had kids who had their own at-risk qualities yeah. and, uh, and, and, and maybe, in your view, needed that kind of structure. Lots of kids who experienced trauma in different forms. Uh, lots of kids who had uh, complicated lives outside of school. And so the goal was really to make school a place that was um, stable and consistent and nurturing, um, but nurturing through structure. You know, you think about uh, a sports team that's successful, right? Part of what makes a sports team successful is discipline, having a set of drills that you do reliably, learning a set of plays. And, you know, think about a school in the same way that you want school to be a place where um, kids know they're going to be taken care of, that they're going to be safe, and that uh, there are routines that are going to support their learning. So, for example, we had homework every night at the school. We also put the homework on the voicemail of the school every night so that a kid could call and get the homework. And so I could always stand up in front of parents and say, your kid's going to have homework every night. They're going to say, like many middle school kids do, I forgot, I'm not sure, I don't know what the assignment is, can I call my friend? Don't worry, call the homework hotline, you will hear the homework read aloud. And that meant everyone understood that was part of the routine. So, you know, one of the interesting questions I've always had about charter schools is um, you can say, well, you were open to everyone, but is there kind of a self-selecting quality to this? Because it, in some ways it suggests that there, you were unusual in that you decided that you were going to go to Andover. You mm-hmm. decided you were going to apply to Harvard. You, you had an unusual... But in most of these cases, parents are making these decisions. Mm-hmm. And if you have parents who are engaged enough to say, you know what, I think my kid might thrive in a school like that, right from Jump Street, you have someone who is going to take an, an interest in that child's education, which seems so important. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Look, we dramatically outperformed the district. Some of that was because of the strong uh, systems we had in place and the great teaching. Some of it undoubtedly was um, 
selection bias, right? The idea that at least for every kid there was an adult who filled out the application. Now, maybe it was a grandmother, a yeah. neighbor. But some, some presence of, in their lives. Yeah, some, some adult, big brother, big sister, somebody took that step. Mm-hmm. And when folks who support charters pretend like there's no selection bias, I think that's a mistake. It's disingenuous. We have to acknowledge there is some of that. Now, what I would ideally want is a school system where all the schools um, are chosen, right? where all the schools have the quality of learning experiences that would be great for kids um, so that we aren't apportioning uh, opportunity by luck which is essentially what a lottery is. Yeah. You uh, did what every, uh, what every great educator does uh, after five years. You went off to law school. Uh, why did you choose to, yeah. to go? You went off to Yale. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted, so after five years of being a principal, I wanted to think about how could we scale some of the things we were doing, particularly the outcomes, and what were some of the policy changes that might get us to a place where more low-income students and students of color would be successful. And I'd always been interested in kind of, you know, legal issues, the Constitution, that kind of thing. We were uh, social studies. I was teacher. a social studies teacher. So I uh, decided to go to law school, uh, figured I would go to law school, finish my doctorate, and then go be an education lawyer. Um, but very quickly, although I love law school, it's very interesting, uh, I missed the connection with students and the community. And so by second year of law school, I was splitting my time. Basically, I'd go to class two days a week, and the rest of the week I would spend time building a network of schools in New York. This uh, And this was in concert with the same partner with whom you did the school exactly. in Boston. You did these uncommon schools. And that I think today there were 44 schools or something. Yeah, yeah. it's serving tens of thousands of students in uh, New York, uh, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. And have they uniformly performed well? Yes. I mean, there's still, you know, there's a range. But but on the whole, they are dramatically outperforming the school districts that they serve. Uh, They're sending a lot of students on to college, and they are succeeding there at a rate five, six times that of the neighboring districts. So very good outcomes. Still a range. You know, anytime you have that many schools, there's going to be a range in performance. But on the whole, uh, very strong performance overall. And and Uncommon, Uncommon Schools has this tradition of really focusing on instructional quality. And that was one of the things I loved about the community we were building, is that people were puzzling over, how do we make this lesson on fractions really great and interesting how do we make this lesson about uh the reconstruction period in american history as interesting and real for kids as possible and that that culture of attention to quality instruction was something i loved let's talk for a second about unions and this would play out during your tenure in government as well charter schools are not favored by uh teachers unions and you know, I'm of two minds on this because I, I think we as a country vastly under uh, underpay teachers and undervalued teachers who may be the most important people in our society. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, the job of the union is to protect their members, uh, whether they're, they're, they're excellent or not. And, and as in any group, uh, they're going to be high performers and low performers and um so 
there and and your uh, uh, your schools were not unionized I, I, I assume That's which right. gave you a great deal of flexibility in hiring in firing in rewarding teachers and so on but also ran afoul of this notion that teachers of teachers banding together as a bargaining unit to get the best deal they could get um, so s- square this all for me you as a progressive mm-hmm, you who mm-hmm. believes that teachers should be paid well uh, you must feel like there, there's an appropriate role for the unions to play and yet there are people who would say you know you're, 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 the, the charters are fundamentally a way to circumvent unions well, you know, I think of it as, um, one, it's really important that we have teachers unions. They have a critical role to play. My mother was uh, very active in the UFT when she was working in New York City. Um, at Uncommon, at, at Roxbury Prep, the compensation and benefits and all of that, we tried as best we could to mirror what folks were getting from the district. Did, did teachers um, come to you and say, we want to organize? No, um, I think partly because the salary and benefits mm-hmm. were commensurate, partly because um, there were flexibilities that teachers appreciated that are missing from some of the district agreements. Now that's like not, like what? Well, so for example, uh, you know, you go into any school, a teacher will tell you that there's a range of quality of teaching going on. And I would say oftentimes when there is a teacher who is doing a terrible job, the colleagues are the first to know and the most eager for that person not to be with kids. And so knowing that we could make sure that the teachers in in our school were all high quality, that mattered to teachers. The flexibility around schedule that allowed us to have more time for teacher teams and for professional development, uh, which sometimes is a challenge within the the collective bargaining agreements that that are agreed to in some districts. Teachers appreciated that. They wanted that. Um, So I I think ultimately for us, it was about trying to create the environment that we would want to teach in an environment that valued teaching that provided time for professional development that compensated people reasonably. And, you know, I I think part of what we need to see in the country is an evolution in how teachers unions approach the work. And I think you're seeing um, some efforts around that. I think you're seeing teachers unions create more flexible agreements, give more autonomy to principals as they manage their team, uh, creating teacher leadership roles in schools so that strong teachers can mentor their peers, those kinds of things. Uh, you, you left and you went to uh, government and you became the deputy education uh, commissioner in New York and then ultimately the education commissioner. You, read, you ran headlong into uh, resistance from unions around uh, how teachers are evaluated and student testing. Part of it coincided with the uh, the the uh, the Obama administration and race to the top and uh, uh, you know so emphasizing some of the same themes you have, which is um, to, uh, to 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 have measurable outcomes with mm-hmm. students and to hold teachers accountable for the outcome uh, of their students. Um, but uh, it didn't go well in New York in terms of 
the politics of that issue uh, for you? Yeah, it was certainly challenging. You know, I think in some ways, uh, you know, the country went through this period of debating around education policy. What is the right role of teacher evaluation? What should teacher evaluation look like? It corresponded with almost every state raising their standards for English and math. I think having both things happen at the same time, the standards increasing. Uh, and that's what happened in yeah. New York because when the tests were administered, students, you got a realistic uh, rating of how the students were doing and they were not particularly positive and that put pressure on teachers, but it also upset parents. Yeah, yeah, and I think then you had the teacher evaluation fight going on then between the, the governor and the teachers union and then you had the standards being raised and it, it was the combination of those forces at the same time was challenging. At the end of the day, I will say, you know, New York, like many states, went through this period of a lot of contentiousness around evaluation and the standards. But on the whole, um, the vast majority of states are still making progress on those higher standards. And on the whole, the vast majority of states changed teacher evaluation in ways that got principals into classrooms more and increased the amount of conversation about teaching and learning in schools. So that was net progress, but the politics were for sure challenging. How about for you personally? In, in the midst, you were young. You were 36, I guess, when you became the education commissioner. You hadn't been involved in politics. Yes. Uh, so you got a bit of an education yourself. I certainly did. Uh, New York politics, you know, like Chicago politics, are uh, uh, intense and tough. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, one of the hardest things was I came to the work with a teacher and principal mindset, wanting to focus on instruction. And a lot of the politics of education are about adult fights, about adult issues, not about core instruction. And so that was an adjustment to make. Um, and I also think New York is a place where, the, as in many states, there's a real tension between the urgency to improve outcomes, particularly for low-income students and students of color, and a sense in suburban communities of just kind of leave us alone, things are fine here. And two things are true. One is things aren't as fine as we'd like to think. We have a lot of work to do as a country to make sure that even our suburban schools are performing at a level that's competitive with our international competitors. Yeah. Uh, and two, um, in order to improve outcomes for low-income students and students of color, we do need to have a national and state-level conversation about equitable distribution of resources. And those are going to be hard conversations, um, but we need to have them. Because if you evaluate uh, these things objectively, there is, a, I mean, the, the, the impression that somehow all these resources are flowing to minority communities, to poorer areas of the country, black, white, Hispanic, uh, that's just not so. That's, that's exactly right. Yes, we spend less as a country on the, on the kids who actually need the most. Uh, it's exactly backwards. Uh, we should be spending more on the highest needs kids. And in fact, uh, we've shown in the work we've done in Education Trust that the gap is larger when you compare districts that serve largely white students to districts that serve largely students of color, that we underinvest again in our students of color particularly. Um, so 
that we see issue. that in Illinois because uh, here this is a state where there's great reliance on property taxes. So those wealthy districts that can that have a, a rich tax base can do much more for their schools because the state isn't providing uh, as much funding, I think, as almost any other state in the in the country. You mentioned international our, our place in, in international competition. I've seen these statistics about where we rate relative to other mm-hmm. countries and and, and uh, declining numbers in in some uh, in in key areas. Uh, where do we stand relative to the world, and how important is this right now at this time in our history? Well, it's hugely important to our long-term economic well-being. You know, the United States used to be first in the world in college completion, folks having earned college degrees. Now we're something like 12th in the world. It's not necessarily because we've fallen back so much as other countries have caught up and surpassed us. Um, But if we're not preparing the engineers of tomorrow and the scientists of tomorrow, um, we're not going to be able to compete. And we know, we see this every day in our economy, businesses can go anywhere in the world. And if they can't find the workforce they need here, uh, they will move to other countries. So we've got work to do to make sure that we are getting students, not just through high school, we made some progress, highest graduation rate we've ever had as a country at 84%. Yeah, it's but not clear what the, those, degree, those diplomas actually mean. That, that's right, that's right. The measure has to be not just finishing high school, but actually earning a meaningful post-secondary credential. Now that might be an associate's degree, might be a bachelor's degree, might be a career and technical certificate of some kind. This is important because we do convey this notion that if you want to be successful, you have to go to college. And there are other tracks uh, that require significant training, but may not be academic in nature. Yes, we have to make sure that everyone possible is getting some meaningful post-secondary learning experience. You, you really can't do very much in the 21st century economy that's going to provide a good wage with just a high school diploma. But the range of options we need to talk about uh, much more thoughtfully as a country. And then we've got to grapple with the fact that still an undergrad degree, a bachelor's degree, is the surest path to the middle class, and that disproportionately is not uh, happening for low-income students, African-American students, and Latino students. And as I mentioned earlier, the majority of kids in our public schools are kids of color. If we don't get much better, much faster at helping students of color and low-income students succeed, not just get to college, but succeed in college, uh, we're not going to be able yeah, to compete. because so many enter and, and uh, not all complete their... That's right. So here, the, the tension, uh, part of the tension I see is this traditional debate about what the role of the federal government should be in education, this notion that education should be uh, administered and should be guided by local communities and not by, you know, to, to use the pejorative bureaucrats in Washington. I'm looking at you, but I'm not being, I'm not <laughs> indicting you. Uh, but... Um, uh, so how in the 21st century do you fashion a federal strategy that is still respectful of local communities and local prerogatives? Yeah. 
Well, I think the, the federal role ought to be, a, at a minimum, helping to set a high bar on aspirations, right? I think it's true the federal government can't prescribe how people get to those aspirations, but the federal government ought to set those, those aspirations. President Obama set the goal of us trying to get back to first in the world in college completion. I think that's, that's exactly right. Federal government also has a role to play around resources. Um, you know, Title I, the main federal uh, education spending program, is designed to get resources to the highest needs kids. That, I think, is an important federal role. The Pell Grant program in higher ed is the way that we, as a country, invest in higher ed for low-income students. Investing in those programs is critically important. And I would build on that. I mean, you know, as you know, we proposed in, in the administration, in the Obama administration, uh, access to pre-K for low and middle income four-year-olds. And why is that so important? Well, we just we know from brain research that uh, so much of a student's um, potential can be tapped early on in their education. There's something like an eight-to-one, nine-to-one return on every dollar invested in quality pre-K. We know that students who have quality pre-K do better in K through 12. They do better. They're more likely to graduate from high school, more likely to go on to college. They have better long-term employment outcomes, even better long-term health outcomes if they've gone to high-quality pre-K. We we propose universal pre-K. We proposed America's College Promise, the idea that we would make two years of community college free for low- and middle-income Americans and also invest in support so that folks would not just start but finish. And, you know, those two programs, uh, folks would say, oh, those are too expensive. Mm -hmm. But then those same members of Congress who said those programs are too expensive, they voted for, you know, two plus trillion dollars in tax cuts. You know, so there's a there's a dissonance between what we need to do to position ourselves to be successful long term. In a, in a globally competitive environment and the choices we're making with our budgets. Talk to me about the philosophy behind the race to the top. I know it started before you got to mm-hmm. uh, to Washington, but you were obviously deeply involved in it, both on the state level and then uh, at, when you were in the Department of Education and running the Department of Education. I'm intrigued by it as a model mm-hmm. uh, where government acts as a catalyst rather than being uh, overly prescriptive. That's right. So the idea was that the federal government essentially award competitive grants to states to make some changes, to to, uh, think about how they might raise their standards, think about how they might improve teacher evaluation, professional development, and support, think about how they turn around low-performing schools, how they better use data to support their schools. And states were asked to compete for this pool of competitive funds. Essentially um, grants. Grants, exactly. And what was fascinating about it was many more states changed their policies and laws than could ever be eligible for their grants. Yeah, so the 44 grant, states or something? Yeah, so the grants ended up having the impact of incentivizing a change in behavior, even without folks necessarily getting a check. Uh, it was a very smart, very high leverage way to use federal dollars. And again, there was a lot of flexibility for how states would implement um, these big goals, uh, but it was an important way for the federal government to signal the, the importance of um, higher expectations. Yeah, it just seems like in, in an era when a lot of good ideas are emanating from the grassroots, that 
there is something to be said for the government um, incentivizing and catalyzing good ideas rather than being uh, really uh, prescriptive about the means to attain attain goals. It seems like a model that could be used for other Oh, uh, other programs. We saw it in the energy department with the competition for uh, grants to develop advanced battery research, for example, where private firms uh, competed, and that that was a, a highly successful effort. But you wonder if that can't that philosophy can't be adapted to other things. Yeah, it builds on the notion though that that government can be a force for good in the world. And unfortunately, I think what you see from the current administration is a sort of anti-government disdain for the public sector that is very unhelpful and ultimately undermines the long-term health of the country. You know, what's interesting is that a lot of the communities from which uh, the president drew his strongest support are communities where local schools are underfunded, where healthcare needs are the greatest. Uh, where a whole range of problems that uh, government should be involved in helping to solve uh, are festering. Um, it's a, one of the great paradoxes of, uh, of our current politics. So tell me, uh, as you look back um, on your own journey um, and, and look forward now, uh, you describe the period in which we're in uh, are, do you find yourself despairing or do you find yourself optimistic that in the end that uh, that education for the 21st century will uh, or an education policy for the 21st century will emerge, take root, uh, build on some of the things that you've done? Or will we be turning the clock back and will that, that clock stay uh, stay? In the reverse. Yeah, it's probably a, a healthy mix of despair and hope at the moment. There's lots of reasons to just be horrified by what we're seeing from, you know, kids being ripped away from their parents to the retreat on affirmative action to the dismantling of civil rights enforcement across federal agencies. Lots of reasons for despair. The things that give me hope um, one is every problem we have in our in public education is being solved somewhere. Um, you know, there, somebody has figured out how to help students complete college who are first-generation low-income students. Somebody has figured out how to make pre-K really high quality. So the challenge is scale, but the solutions are out there. That's one reason I'm hopeful. Another reason I'm hopeful is young people, uh, whether it's you know the young people that I'm teaching in my college course at University of Maryland or the young people who are involved in uh, activism around gun reform, uh, from the young people in Parkland to my own daughters who have gotten very active in their schools on the, the campaign against gun violence. Um, that's a reason to be hopeful because there's uh, optimism and uh, urgency, um, appreciation of diversity that you see amongst young people um, that I think make, makes it so that we, we will get to a better place. We are certainly sliding backwards on some things I care a lot about, but we will get to a better place. And we should point out that you're still in the thick of the fight uh, as head of the Education Trust, which has a, uh, a, a, a august history um, as a reform a education reform group 
uh, talk a little bit about that and what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, our, our mission is to advance education equity opportunity for low-income students and students of color. And so we are uh, constantly doing research to try to identify where there are opportunity gaps that get in the way. And then we're doing advocacy to try to address those gaps at the state level, at the federal level. Uh, we're doing work in P through 12 education and in higher education. Um, but I, you know, education is a civil rights issue, making sure that all young people across communities have access to the kinds of opportunities that will allow them to be successful in the 21st century economy, uh, that's a civil rights issue. Yeah. And so that's the work we're engaged in. I'm so glad to be in the fight. I would not want to be on the sidelines. And and as important as civil rights is, it's, it's, it's an even broader societal issue at a time when we have these yawning gaps in income that keep growing as a result of this divide, a society in which if you have mastery of of uh, technology and some of the things that are required to succeed in the 21st century, there's enormous opportunity. If you're on the other side of that divide, you're consigned to struggle. And more and more people are on that side of the divide. That can only be a prescription for trouble down the line. That's, that's exactly right. Our, really, the health and well-being of our democracy depends on getting education right. It depends on making sure that kids in the highest needs, you know, rural community in West Virginia have access to opportunity and making sure that the kids in the highest needs neighborhood in, in Los Angeles have access to opportunity. That's the work we're doing. Well, it's good work, John King, and I, I thank you for being here and also uh, for your service. Thanks. You're so an inspiring person. Thanks. Thanks. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.